Hello again. I'm happy you decided to join me. We're at chapter 13 of Miracles, wherein Lewis moves from talking about the propriety of miracles to the probability of miracles. Lewis is about to, in the next three chapters, finally look at particular Christian miracle claims. So far, he has shown that there's nothing about God or nature that prevents the miraculous. But as it turns out, however, none of this proves that miracles actually do occur. <laughs> to answer whether or not they actually do occur, argues Lewis, we need some criterion by which to decide any particular claim that is made about a, uh, a supposedly miraculous event. Lewis is quick to point out that, quote, most stories about miraculous events are probably false. If it comes to that, most stories about natural events are false, end quote. In the first paragraph, Lewis has already anticipated a move that his opponent might make. Uh, if the fact that most claims about the miraculous are false renders the miraculous itself suspect, then the very nature that would presumably be our recourse in such a case is also suspect. For many claims are made about her, that is nature, which are false as well. Lewis goes on, quote, in one sense, of course, our criterion is plain. Those stories are to be accepted for which the historical evidence is sufficiently good. But then as we, all, as we saw at the outset, the answer to the question, how much evidence should we require for this story, depends on our answer to the question, how far is this story intrinsically probable? We must therefore find criterion of probability, end quote. Uh, how do we go about this? Lewis goes on, quote, the, the ordinary procedure of the modern historian, even if he admits the possibility of miracle, is to admit no particular instance of it until every possibility of natural explanation has been tried and failed. That is, he will accept the most improbable natural explanations rather than say that a miracle occurred. Collective hallucination, hypnotism of unconsenting spectators, widespread uh, instantaneous conspiracy and lying by persons not otherwise known to be liars and not likely to gain by the lie. All these are known to be very prob improbable events, so improbable that except for the special purpose of excluding a miracle, they are never suggested, <laughs> end quote. This is all, of course, begging the question for Lewis, quote, unless we start by knowing that any miracle, whatever, is more improbable than the most improbable natural events. Do we know this, end quote. The rest of the chapter is Lewis' answer to this question. Are we certain that a miracle is more improbable than the most improbable natural event? Typically, the answer to this question depends upon a certain impression about the uniformity of nature as confirmed in our empirical experiences. That is to say, nature appears to work in a regular fashion that is quite unlike what we think we see and what, what we th think of, that is to say, when we think of miracles. This is often seen as evidence that miracles are intrinsically improbable to occur altogether. But as Lewis goes on to argue, the only sure basis upon which we have to be confident in the kind of uniformity that would exclude miracles depends upon the cosmic picture of a god who, as Lewis has already shown, renders nature unsafe from miracles. Now, I cannot do full justice to Lewis' argument here, but I might try to synoptically present Lewis' insight in a, in a claim that he doesn't himself make explicitly. Uh, and it's this, miracles seem to violate the uniformity of things only if we spend the uniformity of things in nature. 
The problem with this is that the uniformity of nature is not accounted for in herself, but outside of herself. And the moment her uniformity is accounted for outside of herself via metaphysical argument in a deeper unity, she at that very moment becomes unsafe from miracles. This does not tell us how probable or improbable a, a miracle in any particular instance might be. To know this, we would have to know the, the nature and plans of the intelligence which created the canvas of regularity upon which it paints its strokes of miracle at will. We cannot calculate uh, probability in a scientific way without begging the question. As Lewis puts it, quote, we have impounded both uniformity and miracles in a sort of limbo where probability and improbability can never come. The result is equally dis disastrous for the scientist and the theologian, end quote. Lewis thinks there is uh, another kind of probability, however. Uh, quoting, quoting Sir Arthur Eddington, Lewis notes that, quote, we sometimes have convictions which we cherish but cannot justify. We're influenced by some innate sense of the fitness of things, end quote. And Lewis comments on this that, quote, this may sound a perilously subjective and aesthetic criterion, but can one doubt that it is a principle, uh, that is a principal source of our beliefs in uniformity, end quote. What, what Lewis is arguing is that if we don't have some criteria of fittingness in our weighing of the plausibility of this or that claim, we would be unlikely to believe in the uniformity of nature itself or much else that is ordinary to believe. Uh, it would appear that this is a belief that arises in human nature. That is to say, something like the uniformity of nature seems to spontaneously arise in, in human nature. The only question is whether it is a rule of thought that corresponds to anything, in as Lewis, Lewis calls it, uh, external reality. So do the things that naturally arise in us, the beliefs that naturally arise in us, uh, seemingly because they fit that is to say, what we experience, do the, does that just rise in us spontaneously and arbitrarily, or does that correspond and suggest something about what Lewis considers external reality? Uh, Lewis' answer to this question is as follows, quote, the answer depends on the metaphysic one holds. If all that exists is nature, the great mindless interlocking event, if our own deepest convictions are merely the byproducts of an irrational process, then clearly there is not the slightest ground for supposing that our sense of fitness and our, cons and our, and our consequent faith in uniformity tell us anything about reality external to ourselves. Our convictions are simply a fact about us, like the, the color of our hair. If naturalism is true, we have no reason to trust our convictions that nature is uniform. It can be trusted only if a quite different metaphysic is true. If the deepest thing in reality, the fact which is the source of all other facthood, is a thing in some degree like ourselves, if it is a rational spirit and we, can, and, and, we, and we derive our rational spirituality from it, then indeed our conviction uh, can be trusted, end quote. For Lewis, science depends upon a sort of faith in the relationship between mind and reality that cannot but get off the ground without a sense of fitness, a wise instinct about how we can distinguish true and false, an entertainable versus a dismissible understanding or hypothesis. Lewis writes further, quote, 
The philosophy which forbids you to make uniformity absolute is also the philosophy which offers you solid ground for, for believing it to be general, to be almost absolute, end quote. And that's one way of putting it. Another way of arguing this would be, as Lewis argued with the image of a poem earlier in the text, that the uniformity is found precisely in the relationship between the general structure and the exceptions. In any case, Lewis concludes, quote, the alternative is really much worse. Try to make nature absolute, and you find that her uniformity is not even probable. By claiming too much, you get nothing, end quote. And so we have to conclude that miracles are not impossible, and we cannot judge in the abstract how probable they are. And so how does the sense of fitness help us discern this? That is how probable they are. To this, Lewis writes, quote, I do not mean, of course, that we are to use this sense in deciding whether miracles in general are possible. We know that they are on philosophical grounds, nor do I mean that that a sense of fitness will do instead of close inquiry into the historical evidence. As I have repeatedly pointed out, the historical evidence cannot be estimated unless we first estimate the intrinsic probability of the recorded event. It is in making that estimate as regards each story of the miraculous that our sense of fitness comes into play, end quote. <laughs> Lewis argues that we often implicitly use this standard without thinking so. He sets up the next three chapters with a tall order for himself, though. He claims that, that he will discuss the central miracles of the Christian faith in such a way as to demonstrate their fittingness with reality. But crucially, he notes, quote, I shall not, however, proceed by formally setting out the conditions which fitness in the abstract ought to satisfy and then dovetailing the miracles into, some, into that scheme. Our sense of fitness is too delicate and elusive a thing to submit to such treatment. If I succeed, the fitness, and if I fail, the unfitness of these miracles will of itself become apparent while we study them, end quote. Lewis, in a way, is wagering that the Christian miracles are, are so wrapped up with the fundamental meaning structures of history and of reality that unless they illuminate the whole, they are highly implausible to have occurred. Indeed, he expects that if he fails, one should detect the unfitness of Christian claims. <laughs> Lewis' motive argumentation here has some precedent in and Plato's notion of the remembrance of ideas. If you, if you recall, Plato had some notion that knowledge was largely a form of remembering what we had forgotten. And while this doctrine could be, could be overstated, the kernel of truth in it can be summarized in this way. And in, in order to know the truth when we see it, we have to have some sense of what we're looking for. If we didn't have any instinct or sense of what the truth looks like, we would never be able to say, aha, when the light of truth dawned on us. This is similar to what Lewis is doing with the notion of fittingness, except the scope is much bigger than the ordinary truth claim. If Christianity is true, it means something about all of reality, history, science, cosmology, sociology, anthropology, etc. If Christianity is true, well, it doesn't change everything about everything, it leaves nothing precisely and just as it was. And what this means is that to fully see the truth of Christian miracle claims to the extent that one is looking at the faith from the, from the outside, one would have to judge it against a, a, a rather synoptic reading of the whole of reality. And this is precisely what Lewis will be trying to do over the next three chapters. The chief proof of the Christian faith is precisely that its central story 
is the story of the world, the story of also our very lives, and that its particularity is the pattern which shines and illuminates all of life, all institutions and motivations, all nations and collections of their myths and stories. Christianity is a, is a global movement precisely because it preserves within itself the story of the nations, excising only the, the sin and distortion, not uh, distinctive and indigenous insight across the world. This is a brave method that takes a lot of confidence. Lewis is leading the reader on an adventure of soul to see, to see the whole world through the lens of those divine intrusions that Christianity has claimed happened in the Christ. In the next few lessons, I'll try to consolidate Lewis' rich discourse until then from, from one bloke to another. See you later.